Hello, and welcome to the programme. This is the Weekly Protest Podcast. On this week's show, we discuss Philip Hammond's housing targets. Aren't they too ambitious? And is it just a distraction of the current Brexit negotiations? Also, we talk about Brexit. What will a post-Brexit Britain look like? Will it be poor? Will it be rich? Also, we talk about globalisation. Has it worked for the UK? Has it worked for the world? We go in depth. This week's episode is entitled Build Up, Not Out and features the voices of Jack Wolfram, Django Barry, Thomas Jordan, Louis Driscoll and Charlie Wilkinson. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the weekly protest podcast. I'm very uh, glad to be joined by some new people this episode. I'm joined here by Charlie. Hello. By Louis Driscoll. Hi. By the Thomas Jordan again. Morning. <laughs> and Django Barry, our token conservative. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Okay, so. What if they're watching in the afternoon? Well, that, yeah, might, that, that it could, could be possible. Well done, Django. It's, well it's done, being Django. recorded in the morning. Stop assuming people are going to be listening yeah, in the morning. Stop assuming okay? genders. You're evil. I know. I am. Anyway, so the budget. 2017 is only a day away. We are we are recording this on the 21st of November, uh, and uh, Philip Hammond is planning to announce uh, plans to build 300,000 new homes a year. Now these may not all be affordable homes. These may not all be um, council properties. But what do you think? Do you think that the the 300 figure is achievable? Do you think it's possible? And do you think we're building enough affordable and council homes? I'm going to start with Django. Django. You are a member of the Conservative Party, correct? That's right, yeah. Do you think your Chancellor has made the right decision by making this announcement? Well, 300,000 more homes per year is certainly what this country needs in terms of building infrastructure. We are currently um, being grappled. Everyone who's looking for to buy homes are struggling to afford the homes. And so we need to build more homes to um, expand the supply, which will... Um, meet uh, hopefully eventually meet the demand. Um, is it three hundred thousand more homes or three hundred thousand homes per year? Three th- three hundred thousand more homes per year. He wants. Yeah, to, he wants to build a target. Yeah, three th- three hundred thousand yeah. new homes a year built. It's achievable. After World War Two, um, we built houses and at an astonishing rate due to um, the Nazis bombing so many urban areas, and so. I do believe that it is achievable um, just as long as we have the right materials. So one question that you could put to that is that by ha- building these 300,000 pa- homes a year, we might have to start building on the green belt. Mm. Charlie, what do you think? The green belt exists not as... I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the green belt because it's to stop urban sprawl more than to, to protect the environment. And I think... Therefore, you, there's an argument for just going into it and reasserting a new <coughs> green belt. I, I don't think, honestly, from an environmental perspective, it's that much of an issue. Um, however, there, it does exist for a reason. It, there is reasons to try and limit urban sprawl. Uh, I don't know. It, it definitely needs to be the main debate that's happening, I think, to do with housing. Um, but I, I have no solid opinions yet. <laughs> so, Tom, do you think these houses will be affordable? Uh I'm not sure. Now this is this is bearing in mind. This is bearing in mind. The chancellor who made this announcement 
said in the same um, in the same <laughs> interview with Andrew Marr that there are no unemployed people. Said it twice well, as well. Well, he said there Shang were Jackers. no that people only lost their jobs through um, an advancement in technology. For example, shorthand typewriters. But then we then we developed new industries and new jobs from that. So, so that's TJ. what he meant. Do you think uh, these homes will be affordable, or do you think do you believe the Chancellor when he says affordable homes? I, dep- I think it depends how he's going to build them. If he's going to get private companies to build them, which no, which is very much, which is very likely party, when he says will. when he says the government will simply yeah. not pour money in. It will be up to the private companies to decide how they're going to build it, how they're going to pay for it. There's four hundred thousand people homeless on the streets in the UK today. 300,000 work hours and more, it'll be up to the highest bidder who gets these houses. The government, if they're getting private companies to do this, won't have a say in how they're going to set the prices. So it'll be as affordable as the companies want to make them. Didn't, um, I'm pretty sure Theresa May said a few days ago that it'd be 80 grand per house for the new affordable houses. Um, do yeah, you know, do, does everyone know the definition of, of an affordable house? house? The thing is, affordable, well, pretty affordable sure so, no, no, so what an affordable house is, is 80% of, of average market yeah. rent. But also, so, affordable housing is always judged by the government of the day gets yeah. to decide yeah, yeah. what yeah. affordable means. Well, yeah. Affordable uh, is one of those terms where it could mean anything. What do you think, Louis? Do you, do you think... Well, I've experienced this firsthand. Like, there's houses being built behind me in a field yeah. that in behind me. And in the beginning, the council were like, oh, it's all, our, all affordable housing. It got postponed because the, the first private company that came in couldn't afford it. They sold it on. Two years later, the houses are built. But now only a third of the houses are affordable. The rest are just rented to anyone who wants it. Mm. So Can I've I seen this. I've seen this happen time and time again in my area. Can more and more people building yeah, affordable houses just end up not. Affordable. Is this like are these houses being built for ownership or rent? Like what's, um, what's the plan? It's a bit of both. Um, I did do a little bit of research into this. Um, uh, a economist at Oxford University said, called Martin Beck, said extra borrowing for construction could ultimately be offset by the revenue from renting or selling the properties so it's going to be a bit of both um obviously i i think it would be because it's a conservative government given to private renters or um there is going to be a growing theresa may has um made a pledge to um grow the number of council houses now, now to come back on that django there's lots of these houses that are being built but then they're being offered firstly not not to the not to the people in this country, not to those who need it most, but to people overseas, to Russians, and to well, they uh, would we don't, we don't no, no, they're, they're, not, they're, they're, not, only they're not overseas at the moment. I mean, they're, they're still offered to people who you, you can't live in a British house if you're not living in Britain. And no, also, these you can keep, it, you, can keep it, you can keep it empty. The, um, Jack, these that's overseas true. investors tend yeah, that, that's to that's not a job with that's not an issue with affordable housing. That's an issue with housing. No, it's also not a racial issue. I'm not saying no, but. Also, I understand what you mean. You're basically yeah. saying people from countries that are nowhere near England having houses in England, which yeah. doesn't which benefit them. The only thing it benefits for them is that they make money. No, I'll tell you what, an interesting um, an article which I have seen, um, I think it was by um, the BBC actually, it was um, one where they were looking at Chinese investors going up into the north and buying properties up there. And um, I think an interesting comparison to make with that is the recent 
New Zealand election. I know that's a kind of uh, non sequitur, <laughs> but Which the Labour got yeah yeah won illegitimately. May I say? Um, anyway, anyway, let's move on the conversation. Anyway, about the, the problem. <laughs> Okay, so the reason why New Zealand got—I mean, the reason why—the reason why (laughs) Labour got so many people, Labour got so many people to vote for them in the New Zealand election was because of this housing issue in New Zealand. Okay, and they said that um, they would stop um, the foreign investors from buying up New Zealand properties, but the the National Party, which is the equivalent to uh, the Conservative Party in New Zealand, said that no, we want to build homes, which is what the Conservative Party are pledging to do. What the Labour government in New Zealand has already done is introduced tariffs between them and Australia and and them and Vietnam, okay? The uh, New Zealand has grown exponentially over the past decade or two, actually. And that was because the economy, they. The, the, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the economy. Anyway. And that is because they uh, got themselves involved in international trade and they made themselves a global country. And it was through. And over the past decade, it's been particularly acute with this last national government. Okay, but now Labour are introducing tariffs, which is putting a strain on the Australian New Zealand relationship and the wider Southeast Asian dynamic. And so the idea to stop foreign investors um, would be not beneficial to Britain in my view. And what would be beneficial is if we provide the homes to balance out the foreign investment and the demand from native Britons. So let's let's bring it just slightly back onto onto message in terms of, there are there are ways that these private investing companies are getting around it by saying you know we're going to build housing estate and we're going to have affordable homes because the government have a quota on the affordable homes, but that will decrease and decrease and the amount of affordable homes will be you know minute and then and then you have um I, I was watching a I watched a program where they had like two entrances I don't know mm, if any of yeah, you saw the it portal. They, yeah, you have the you have the front fancy schmancy entrance yeah, and then you have the here. you have the porter at the back where all the affordable homes are put. You know the, the, the entrance around the back with the bins. Oh, by the St. Mary Reckon, that massive new city chic living, massive new building, got mm. a nice front doors at the front, mm. but then for like actual housing, they're on the back. Mm, bit of an issue. What what I wanted to ask, um, sorry, I don't really understand about this. Do we have any indication yet about how much money has actually been proposed? Because because it was only a month ago that ter- mm. uh, only a month and a bit ago that Theresa May said she'd give two billion. It will be Which announced in the budget. Yeah, that won't be I, I know it will be announced in yeah. the budget. I'm just wondering if there's any been any, any advance any that she had already said yeah, yeah, yeah. there'd be two we, billion. Um, well, Which the media suspects that there houses. will be borrowing taking place yeah. to um, uh, build these homes. Sajid Javid. A couple what we, yeah, weeks what, ago what we do know, that. yeah, is Sajid Javid is reported because he's community secretary, communities and local government. Um, is reported he wants fifty billion pounds to be put into a house building drive, but. In this interview with Andrew Marr, um, Philip Hammond refused to commit to that. Mm-hmm. Though, to be honest, that isn't particularly surprising yep. because he wouldn't commit <laughs> yeah, during exactly. before a budget because that would steal his, his thunder <laughs> and for scrutiny. Yep. So we're going to have to find out the budget is tomorrow. Are we watching it carefully? P- partially because of my uh, uh, interest in politics and also because of my uh, studies. But, you know, yep. we'll have to watch a bit closer. But thank you very much on that. So, Brexit means Brexit, as they say. 
Um, Brexit negotiations seem to have slightly stalled, if that's a bit of an understatement. Uh, we've definitely seen, um, I don't know if anyone saw yesterday on the 20th, um, things like the Drugs Authority and the Financial Authority has been moved to, um, I think it was Amsterdam and Paris respectively. My question is, what is our post-Brexit vision? What will post-Brexit Britain look like? Will it be good? Will it be bad? I want the good, bad, the ugly. Louis, as someone who, who kind of slightly uh, quite likes the idea of leaving the European Union for various reasons, what do you think our post-Brexit future looks like? Well, without spilling too much into our next topic, it all depends on what we do with it. Because the, e the EU has limited our, our globalisation efforts with other countries. So now that we leave, it all depends on if we further our globalisation efforts with other, other countries to improve our trade and our free trade to expand as a country alone. But then again, with the, the, the ranks in the Conservative government falling apart, the, the backstabbing, the, just the overall like, run-down talks, is, it, lo it looks like we're not going to come off well at the moment. But... I still think it's a better decision to come out than stay back in. See, I have an objection at this point. A large part of the Leave group was to reclaim British business. Like, Michael Gove got to go on a fishing boat route, protecting fisheries, like, going to war with Iceland over some fish or whatever. Um, the Cod Wars. Yeah, <laughs> the Cod Wars. Uh, as, as Charlie <laughs> says, the Cod Wars. But, my point is, the European Union would purposefully restrict our trade with the wider world as a commonwealth that I'm sure Django will rant on about for a minute um, in order to protect our business like British businesses nothing we have no barriers now to stop uh, transnational companies like big corporations uh, sending jobs out to India or Vietnam where they there's no minimum wage they can pay people a lot cheaper Surely that's already happening. happening. Yeah, that's already a sovereign government has that it's, power. It's, it's already happening in China. Like you said, it is futile because they're like, oh, the EU takes away our sovereignty to decide what we do. But when we leave, they're going to decide to take it away from the British business anyway. Anyway, I feel Conservative government will not support the British the British like companies. Yeah, like even though, not, even though they say they do, I, I feel like, I feel like they will look for a cheaper alternative to give a quick boost to our economy because that's what we need, really. We need a boost to our economy. We need something to get off our feet out of this sort of recession. So, Charlie, mm -hmm. I look down at your notes and yes. I see a, a nice <laughs> statement there's, there's in capital little, letters to, to those uh, who, who aren't in here in, in our fantastic studio. <laughs> Show the microphone. It says in capital letters, in giant capital letters, Brexit means Brexit. This is only because I forgot to write any notes on Brexit. But I think Brexit. the only the, the only main thing I have to say on Brexit is that a lot of people, particularly in the Labour Party, are acting like Brexit is the end of days. Brexit. Like, one when and Brexit agree, happens... The world's going to end. Uh, you know, Britain is going to sink into the sea <laughs> and it's going to instantly die. The tectonic like, plates. At the end of the day, Brexit... Uh, Brexit? Yeah, the the EU is an economic union. It's a, it's a market. It's not something that that should be viewed as, like, some kind of perfect utopia. And so I think upon leaving it it probably will be a hit to the economy but we'd less have to concentrate on how we're going to 
how we're going, like damage reduction, and more concentrate on how we'll recover afterwards. And I, th I think that's that's where we're going with it. Because I mean, I don't know much about how the negotiations are going at the moment. Yeah, that's definitely a true statement. You're gonna bring I mean, in Liam no, Fox again? Nope, I won't. But um, he's a great uh, example of why globalization will work for Britain. But anyway. Um, he, you said something really important there. We don't know how the negotiations are going behind closed door. Michel Barnier recently um, came out with a statement and he sounded quite gloomy, but you'll notice that the Brexit negotiations on our side sound overly optimistic. The Brexit negotiators on the EU side sound um, overly pessimistic. I think the most important uh, place to um, judge where we are in the Brexit negotiations is just in the middle. Um, I will say, however, that, that only 15% of the world economy is based around the EU, and it is set to shrink over the next, over the coming decade or two, to only 12%. The rest of the world is growing. Countries like Nigeria and India um, require um, a lot of investment, and the EU wouldn't be willing to give that investment because the EU is um, uh, trying to be self-sufficient and um, it, then the EU's a route into a wider uh, European trade block. Um, once we are out, we will be able to trade in abundance with the roughly 170 countries outside the EU, plus, um, plus of course, the EU countries coming um, trading with them. As for what post-Brexit Britain will look like, it will be, in my opinion, in a coming decade or two, will be a lot more of a multinational society um, because we will have um, developed trading relationships with the Commonwealth, with the, uh, the United States, Japan and many other Asian countries. I think it will look bright. So I'm gonna so let's look at Theresa May has she chaired a, a meeting with her cabinet where they were discussing the possibility of um, giving a higher figure to European negotiators on how much they're willing to pay um, as a kind of exit payment. Oh, the divorce bill. The divorce bill. Yeah. Because um, Mr. Barnier and Mr. Juncker and, uh, have said that we have got a, a good free trade agreement that is, uh, you know, has the possibility of, you know, being brought, but without discussing the divorce bill first, will we get to it? So, I got one question. Do you? I, I'm gonna. I just want a one-word answer from each of you. Do you think we'll leave with a deal or without a deal, Django? Yes, we'll leave with a deal. That's not one word, Django. Yeah, just well, you, you asked a question that required multiple words. I, I just yes or no. Okay, <laughs> Tom. Will we leave with a deal? Yes or no? That's what you should have said. Deal? Yes. No deal. No. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Will we leave with a deal? Yes or no? No. Yes. Yes. But. Is it a deal right. we want? That's ah, the okay. that, that is a good point. And actually, I love the fact that um, the party, the Conservative government, has um, decided to bring the um, eventual deal as a vote to the House of Commons. Because, essentially, Labour will want to vote down the deal, but they know that if they do vote down the deal, then they've gone back on their word yeah. of saying public, that um, like any that. deal is better than no uh, deal. No deal. Yeah. And so it puts them in a precarious position. But yeah, I think it will be interesting plans coming soon. Okay. So, final question, if I can think of what I was about to say. 
my final question is another yes or no answer of... That went so well last time. <laughs> <laughs> so, my final question. In five years' time, in 2022, nice. will Britain... This is yes or no question. Economically, will Britain be poorer? Django. Uh, yes, Britain will be poor in 2022. No. Tom, no? Louis? Inevitably, yeah. Yes. Charlie? Our philosophical uh, question this week is, has globalisation been a success for the UK and for the world? So... This is a big question, obviously. It's going to encompass a lot of things. It's going to have links with Brexit as well. I think I'm going to start with Charlie first. So, Charlie, do you think globalisation has been a positive or a negative for the UK and for the world? Ooh. It's an interesting one, right? Um, I think it depends who you're looking at, like which people within uh, within the UK... Did you? Don't mind. Within the UK and, um, and within the world like so corporations have benefited massively so if you're looking at the ceos of these massive corporations they're doing brilliantly um individuals with a massive amount of wealth are always or already um are, we're already doing great and are doing even better with globalization um but then you know the poorest people in our country have probably um there's been a net negative impact certainly um the loss of jobs and moving of industries from uh, from the uk to places like bangladesh and china um but it's so it's all about the frame of reference. But I think uh, certainly the, the people who I believe more importantly talk about the positive and negative effects, which is the poorest in any country. Probably there's been a net negative. Of course, some places have. Are benefited. you saying that the um the world uh, that over the past thirty years a billion people being lifted out of poverty due to globalization is a bad thing for so, the poorest so people in how, the world? How do you know that's due to globalization? What is well, it? Well, because it's happening all in I, countries I, like I, Nigeria I and uh, countries like um China and countries mm. like Bangladesh and India that these um that this uh, emancipation of people from poverty. Has taken place. But surely, Django, you can't it's you can't argue that you know yeah, there hasn't been problems with globalization. Oh yes, there's yeah, certainly been problems. But we've got to also just remember quickly that Britain has always been a globalized country. I mean, since the 19th century. I mean, we had a global empire. We've been a global economy since then. Our wealth as a nation has been largely created due to our trading networks. But we're not producing world. anything to trade. It's all gone off to China, gone off to well, now places where it's cheaper, where they can well, exploit workers. Because of the um, introduction of the European Union, our, um, our home building um, of manufacturing goods um, has gone down. But... Um, overall, it's been good for Britain because we've turned into a consumerist nation over the past uh, hundred years, from being a um, manufacturing nation to a consuming nation because we're um, one of the original first world countries. Is that going to last? Is that going to last? Yeah. last? Are you not? Are well, you yeah, yeah. We can't yeah, go yeah, back to no, what, what I'm saying is, like, is is the consumerism lifestyle good for Britain? Is it going to sustain us? Because right now, I don't see it is. I feel like the gap's getting bigger between the wealth, the wealthy and the poor. I feel like. Have you heard of the cyclic theory of development? No, enlighten us about no, the. Yeah, yes, please tell us. I'm not sure if it's called that. So something like that. Um, it basically says that as you've seen with Britain, yeah. The first, the first countries to industrialize, they have like 
they go through the industrial age and they come out and they become consumer societies you see more like Britain and France America and Germany but then it shifts like you see like the shift to Asia and then Asia becomes more developed and repeats the same thing as we've seen in China with Django said like 300 million people in China being lift out of, lifted out of poverty but the thing is you'll still need goods technology like robotics which um are already proving in factories like the tesla factory that they can build yeah, complex machinery um without a human uh without humans building it or aiding it other than in software um we are moving towards a um, manufacturing Global yeah, that's, world that's the problem the where we're only, um, when, where when you have robotics replacing jobs robots. on a mass scale, where do these people who've been put out of jobs go back into poverty? And who's going to lift them yeah, out again? The, so, so, but over the time, like, as, as um, what was uh, said by Philip Hammond and, and largely misconstrued on the Andrew Marr show, new industries develop. People were worried about um, uh, typers losing their job. Um, shorthand typers, that's what they're called, um, back in the 60s with the development of the personal computer. But um, we haven't really seen a massive impact of a lot it's of true, jobs in that Let's let Charlie come in. And so, well, what I wanted to say was uh, linking back to Thomas's point about the kind of the temporary nature of globalization lifting people out of poverty. Because when a big, com when a big company from another country comes in and builds a factory and employs you there, that's great. That's great for the time being. But it does nothing to improve the actual state of these countries overall. Uh, there's uh, an effect on infrastructure, which is great, but it doesn't m make a long-term benefit to these countries in compared to other ways that we can that we can develop new countries. Like, say, for example, um, I'm sure you heard the news story about Zara recently and the uh, the notes that have turned up in people's clothes because yes. a factory is closed down, mm -hmm. and so hundreds of people just lost their jobs. And that's it now. They're just back to poverty. It's not long-term development. It's a company dropping in, exploiting them, and coming yeah. back out again. So, if they also, protest, additionally, they like, they lose their jobs. Can I? Okay, yeah, go ahead. Can I just um? So, Tom, you talked about kind of comp uh, uh, Western countries like Britain, France, United States, but Germany, you mentioned. Yeah. Let's let's look at because we're talking about globalization and the effects it has. But let's also talk about kind of the effects that governments have to try and. Uh, help those who are affected by globalization in a negative way. Germany's uh, manufacturing sector is twice the size of Britain at 23% to Britain's 11%, which is over, uh, over double the size. And that's because they have, a glo they, have a, they have an industrial strategy. Do you think the British government has done enough to try and tackle the problems that are exist through globalization and that affects? Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. Like uh, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything too controversial, but like we've discussed this before, Thatcher kind of brought in this new idea of working, yeah, yeah, yeah. where you move away from the factories and the mines, you come to more of this office setting where service economy. Service economy, yeah, it's like the new style of working in Britain, and that's why we've seen it such a decrease, and that maybe other countries haven't seen such an impactful leader that, in good or for better or for worse, has changed the way that their country sees working and what kind of work they do. And I think also linking on from the. Germany is a bit of an exception because after World War Two, both America and the Soviet Union invested loads of it because mm. it was split in half and there's like the ultimate experiment, uh, equal population, equal economic wealth. It's like it's the perfect 
setting for whether communism or capitalism would be better. So both countries invested loads. They built up Germany's industry and services and basically made it into a model state. And as a result, its economy and like industry sectors haven't, uh, as you've seen with Volkswagen, it hasn't taken such a hit. Like it's came out of the 2008 crisis relatively okay. So what I'm kind of inferring from what people are saying is the reason why Britain may have not done as well as, let's say, Germany is because of certain political leaders like Margaret Thatcher's industrial strategy. Well, Django, as a conservative, what would you you say to that? Well, what I would say is um, what the British government are currently doing to uh, try and keep up with globalisation is invest in industries such as robotics and AI. And um, up and coming industries. Um, Philip Hammond well, was. Uh, um, <laughs> Philip Hammond was um, bragging on the Andrew Marr show about the uh, development and the um, new investment he is going to announce in Wednesday's budget in self-driving cars. And this is an industry which could potentially, if we get at the forefront of it. If we get in the forefront of AI, robotics, and self-driving cars, there are problems. Uh, with that, uh, yeah, yeah, there are problems, but there are problems in development. But then, there, but were, then there were problems yes, in the development of the diesel engine. But, but then, we do, would you would you agree with? But if we are at the forefront of this, right. then and we are, have left the European Union with free trade deals with countries like the United States, Australia, Canada, um, New Zealand, uh, India, Bangladesh, China, etc., we can export these products and hopefully try and get a trade surplus and if what, you I, what i would say to that Django, is the things with ai and robotics is if we become market leaders in that area do we sacrifice things like taxi drivers lorry drivers bus drivers train drivers to the point where we have to introduce things like i don't know if anybody's heard of the the idea of universal basic income whether we introduce that as a possible safeguard against globalisation. But I want to ask you this question, this is what I asked you before, and then you veered off about current government. Do you think what Margaret Thatcher did and what the governments of the 80s and uh, major of the 90s, what they did, do you think they did enough to battle globalisation? Do you think that it's been a positive or a negative? I think they did enough. I mean, if you look at the trade, a trading graph, um, I think I have it up on my phone, although unfortunately um, this uh, doesn't show uh, video. But um, what you'll notice in the graph is our trading, um, the amount we trade, uh, the benefit to um, what we get for our exports, essentially, um, the balance between our imports and exports. When there is a conservative government, and it's quite a striking pattern, when there is a conservative government, the trade deficit, and we've had a trade deficit for the past 50 odd years, but um, it decreases and it um, goes um, nearly to a level of roughly zero. Um, when there is a Labour government, it goes below. And so I would say that most certainly, most certainly, a conservative government is a government that cares for globalization and wants the best outcome for globalization for the British people. Okay, so Louis, um, your final word on this topic. Well, yeah, Jang, no, Jang is right. After, like, like, after the fall of the Soviet Union, most parties in ev- most countries decided like maybe this extreme left is not a good way to go. 
this 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 we need to move more centre or more right. That then globalisation will become like the only feasible option for some of these governments. But bringing it back to the p- political issue, not just the economic issue, um, it increases apathy in our country. I feel that they don't the, the people don't feel represented, and then and it also it, c- it increases support for extremist parties such as the BNP that mm. want the rights for the British people. Benefits for the British, things like that. Also, this is a, I, I don't see this as much, but many people do claim that lots of lots of terrorist incidents is due to to, to people or groups from these countries that are being exploited. These LEDCs that are being exploited by certain global globalization globalization companies from Britain taking action against them. So it creates all, it creates all these problems that may or may not be the, the leading cause. But globalization is is a difficult topic when it comes to what the government needs to do to get the support of the people. Well, thank you very much for that very comprehensive discussion. So now we come to the my what about favorite parts of the episode? It's a new segment we're going to try out. Uh, I've got Tom Jordan here, who is an avid reader and an avid reader of various political books, and he's going to give us his political um, book review uh, in. A minute or under. Uh, what's the title of this week's book, Tom? I've had been reading Who Lost Russia by Peter Conradi. You've got a minute in three, two, <laughs> one, go. Um, Peter Conradi was in Russia the week the Soviet Union fell. Um, he was Kremlin correspondent for Sunday Times, and he wrote Hitler's Piano Fair and The King's Speech. Um, it's a first-hand account of the people who lived through it, of the fall of the Soviet Union and title would suggest who lost Russia uh, we were told by governments like in America and the British government that this was supposed to be the end of history as he puts it like the whole world would embrace democracy but as you can see like far from that has happened um, it basically tells the account of how Russia fell in back into the hands of authoritarianism and like what we can do to try and bring freedom back to the so finally would you recommend it is a good read I would, yeah. It's very interesting. Well, it brings up both sides. So, Louis, as one of our newest recruits onto the programme, what is our political gaffe? What is your political gaffe of the week? It's got to be the, there's, no, there's no unemployed people. There's no unemployed really, people. Really, like, that is such a stupid thing <laughs> to say. Like, honestly, live television, well, not live, but just on television, I guess. Don't really say that, especially up and coming with the with the older old budget. Don't want to be saying those things. It doesn't look good for the so there's not very representative. Uh, I remember 20 years ago we were worrying about what was going to happen to the million shorthand typists um, in Britain as the personal computer took over. Yeah. Well, nobody has but, a shorthand but typist these days. Jobs, but where are all these unemployed people? There are no unemployed people. So, thank you very much for tuning in today's podcast. I've been Jack Wilfran, your host. I've been Charlie. I've been Louis. I was Tom, but I'm not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still Django. Well, thank you very much. See you next week. Bye.